welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I am here with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole, on this lovely Monday afternoon. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? It is time to record some podcast sanctions talk. After some technical difficulties, we have not... We're going to talk about this today, but we don't believe we've been hacked, which is good news. But we are going to talk about that quite a bit today. You don't um, count. Don't don't count it. Don't count it as over until the podcast is over. We though. we might we might have our data locked down and a ransom demand right. made in the middle of the podcast. We're keeping our first, fingers crossed that won't happen. But first, you know, there could also be a for coup. Instagram. There could also be a coup in Canada where Tim is, um, or or in Maryland where I am, and and that would also upend our plans. But let's let's hope not. Let's hope actually not. probably given more likelihood rec- in both places. Given recent events, I think Maryland is a lot more likely than Canada. But maybe, we'll perhaps, perhaps. Um, we never we never count our chickens here on embargo. So in any event, thank you to everybody for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, thanks to everybody for weighing in on the last episode. Appreciate the feedback and the comments as always. Um, we had teased perhaps some guests coming on this time for scheduling and other reasons. Um, we are pushing that off a little bit, but we will have those guests on eventually, uh, maybe later this month. But for now we are going to wrestle with a couple of big ticket items that have come up in the past couple of weeks since we last recorded. Um, before we get to the roadmap for today, our normal uh, preliminary comments that we are not here giving legal advice, we're not discussing confidential information, and in all views expressed on the podcast are those of me and Mr. O'Toole. Blame us if you do not agree with them. Uh, and if you do like the pod, please subscribe. Please spread the word. Please uh, give us a rating. If you do subscribe, hopefully a five-star rating, um, you can get us anywhere you get your pod content. So, uh, without further delay, here's what we're going to cover today. A fairly tidy outline by our standards, um, four topics, three in the, in the main portion and then one for the lightning round. So we're going to start off with, um, number one is the, the OFAC ransomware advisory that came out actually just a day or two after we recorded the last episode. We're going to start with that. We're going to go then to, um, a pretty interesting enforcement action settlement that was just announced um, that pertains to uh, the Russia sanctions and Directive 4 uh, as item number two. Then we're going to shift to um, the big news uh, also out of Canada about um, the Huawei C- CFO uh, Meng Wanzhou and the uh, deferred prosecution agreement that was announced um, just a couple of weeks ago and her triumphant return to China uh, in in the wake of that. And then in the lightning round, we're going to talk sort of a, a flip side to um, to that the Meng uh, resolution is another resolution that was announced out of SDNY of the Ethereum um, developer who got tangled up in a sanctions case uh, involving his trip to North Korea and a guilty plea that was just entered in that case um, a few days ago as well. So. That's going to be the episode for today. Um, just those four topics. Um, plenty to talk about there. So we we felt like that was more than enough to occupy us for this go round. So before we get started, Mr. O'Toole, any any thoughts, any comments, um, any 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 words before we get? Yeah, I mean it's kind in? of fairly criminal heavy today, except for item two. But we got three three criminal cases slash criminal activities on the agenda out of four. That's a lot. 
yeah, near and dear to our roots and our hearts. So, so this is a this is a fun one for us to do. Um, and so, um, with that, let's let's dive right in. So, topic number one is um, on September twenty first. Uh, OFAC issued an updated advisory on potential sanctions risks relating to the facilitation of ransomware payments. And as most of you who are um, loyal listeners know, we covered the original ransomware advisory and guidance that came out last year on the pod. Um, Not exactly earth shattering changes, but I think some notable changes that are worth covering. The other thing that's interesting that came along with this as well is there was the first um, sanctions that were levied against a, uh, a virtual currency exchange in connection with facilitating ransomware payments or the laundering of money in, context, in connection with ransomware payments. And that was uh, SUEX, which is a virtual exchange out of Russia. Um, and we'll come back to that in, in a few minutes. Um, but that was also, um, you know, in typical OFAC fashion, they kind of tie up the um, the guidance in the regulatory piece with some kind of enforcement or sanctions announcement as well, all, all in one to, to sort of bring maximum visibility to it. And that's, that's pretty much what happened here. So on the advisory itself, just a couple words on that, a couple high points that I want to, that I want to touch upon and then, then a word about SUEX and then I'll toss it over to Tim. So I think the, the advisory to my, in my view, sort of it sort of builds on some themes that we've been seeing quite a bit in terms of how to understand the scope of the risk in connection with the facilitation of ransomware payments or, or even the, the payment of ransomware payments themselves. I think the term we used when we talked about this the last time was this this seemed this advice, this advice and this guidance seemed directed at sort of the ransomware uh payment ecosystem, if you will, and all of the actors that are involved in that, whether that be financial institutions, cyber insurance firms, digital forensics firms, incident response firms, um, other types of payment processors, certainly virtual wallets and virtual currency exchanges, and and any other kind of private actors that are involved in, in that behavior and in those payments. And OFAC did actually, um, in the press release, they cited some pretty astonishing numbers about the the uptick in ransomware payments, which are obviously pretty well documented. But uh, as of last year, it was creeping up on half a billion dollars in, in known wow. ransomware payments that were that were made. Now, the, the true number could be quite quite a bit higher than that, but half almost half a billion dollars or just under half a billion dollars in known ransomware payments. Obviously, this is a problem that has, has grown uh, exponentially during the pandemic. And so the idea that ro- that OFAC is going to use uh, its, um, you know, soapbox to try to spread the word and bring awareness to this is not surprising. This this is sort of more the same. I think the key themes that that really have come out in this latest updated ransomware advisory, um, a couple of things that are you know, sort of tried and true um, OFAC uh, talking points. One is certainly that there's a an expectation clearly that anybody who is kind of part of this ecosystem, part of this world, or has anything to do with ransomware payments um, really needs to have an appropriate risk-based compliance program, so OFAC compliance program in place, because um, long gone are certainly the days that you can plead ignorance of the fact that facilitating these payments or being involved in these payments might um, 
not have anything to do with uh, sanctions related considerations. I think clearly this has been well established and, and, and that's sort of that friendly reminder is, is in there. Another is the idea that um, uh, cooperation with OFAC and with law enforcement and the idea that uh, certainly for victims, but, but even for others that are involved in this process, that coming to law enforcement and sharing details, including technical details of, of any particular ransomware attacks is highly encouraged um, and will be sort of credited as a mitigating factor in the event that there is perhaps some uh, unintentional nexus or connection to a sanctioned party in in um, in this in dealing with a ransomware demand. Um, and the and the last thing, which of course is, or not the last thing, but the other notable thing that I'll mention is the idea that you know the U.S. government is is obviously officially on record as not encouraging uh, actors to pay ransoms. Yet um, I think they're by the very nature of this guidance and the advisory acknowledging that this is going to continue to happen and is going to continue to be an issue and something that as a practical matter companies and other other entities whether it be obviously hospitals universities have been much in the news in terms of being targets of ransomware other professional service firms um you know all any kind of industry that has um either you know proprietary uh, information relating to their business or in, you know, financial inf information that's of use that could be potentially targeted ha pretty much has been at this point and will presumably continue to be until there is some, um, there is some effective deterrence that gets rolled out in, in this space, which has not to date happened. An another, of course, another, of course, encouragement is, uh, OFAC is encouraging those to build cyber resiliency tools and invest in that and take that seriously, which, which kind of goes hand in hand with, with a, a good defense here. Um, and so th those are all important points. Obviously the thing that I would note is I think when we have had this come up and, and, in in a number of instances it is typically companies it's typically on the victim side that we're hearing from folks who are, who are targeted by these things and and occasionally those who are kind of in the middle of this who get um asked to you know sort of be part of the um either the payment of a ransom or the remediation of a ransomware um uh, attack or what have you um those are obviously for, the victims. Obviously, are, are sort of the you know kind of innocent bystanders in, in this in this whole um, grand scheme of things, and I think are always very acutely aware of and concerned about what the real risk is to them if they were to go forward and make one of these payments. Because, as we've said many times before, and as OFAC says, you know, look, it's no defense to say, well, I didn't realize that perhaps I was dealing with an actor in North Korea or an actor in Iran or or an, or somebody on uh, on the SDN list when I was making this payment. Um, obviously, as we know, strict liability and, and, and that's um, at the end of the day, uh, sort of the, you know, always, always lurking in the background when it comes to any of these issues. But that being said, the, the one entity that got put on the, the SDN list here, SUEX, the, the, uh, the currency exchange from Russia, the, when you read the description of what they're involved in, you know, something over 40% of their transactions are tied to illicit actors. And they are clearly were singled out, it seems, for designation, in part because they are seen as they were they were singled out as a material for providing material support to those who were engaging in malicious cyber activities under the executive under the cyber EO. 
um, they are being seen and singled out as essentially a, almost a co-equal aider and a better of the cyber actors themselves. And so that's not surprising that that's where that that's where OFAC's attention starts from an enforcement perspective. But I think the, the so much of the advisory goes to the much lower level innocent if you will, or more innocent, certainly actors that are involved in this process and just trying to disentangle themselves from, from a, what can be a, just a incredibly messy and painful situation when you get a ransom demand and you're suffering and you're, you're victimized by one of these attacks. So I think to me, that was a little bit of a stark contrast is the one example example that was targeted is clearly a bad actor in the eyes of OFAC and, and by most objective standards. And yet most of the advisory is, is really, I think speaking to, the people that are maybe in more of the gray area or maybe even on the far the far end of the spectrum away from any kind of real gray area in terms of bad acting, but are, are really just purely worried about the strict liability aspect of all this. So um, so anyway, that's, you know, another another sort of big splashy, you know, statement OFAC's making on the ransomware issue, an issue that is not going away anytime soon that continues to be front and center. Um, and so, you know, I think those that, that gives a lot of food for thought. Let me toss it to, to Tim to sort of comment on on sort of where he sees uh, the, the key takeaways from from what we saw from OFAC here. So I thought this was a big deal. And and the reason that I thought it was a big deal is, is that I, I walk away from this thinking that no reputable company will ever be able to make a ransomware payment again without involving law enforcement. And here's how I get there. I mean, I think... The biggest change of this was the U.S. government basically coming out and saying we don't like these payments. So to me, that's new, and it and and, and they've and, said and that to some. They've said that to some degree. It's pretty stark here. It's pretty but stark before here. It, it before it was very you know we understand that you may need to make these payments for your business, but please keep in mind that they're and now it's like this th these are encouraging ransomware attacks and there's lots of sanctioned individuals and companies and and entities that are involved in these payments and let us show you all of the trouble you can get in if you make these payments and it turns out there's a sanctioned party so i i just thought but but to me i think you put your finger on it at the very end there in terms of why it's such a game changer in this area the focus on the the you know the the banks and the insurance companies and 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 the cryptocurrency exchanges, all of which would need to get involved in these sorts of payments, to me makes it almost impossible that anybody can make a ransom payment of, of any size, at least any US company and probably any company in the West could make a ransom payment of any size. Um, without involving US law enforcement authorities because you know, the 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 victim has an incentive in some instances to keep law enforcement out of it. They might want to make the payment and just keep it quiet, and they just don't want the sort of potential publicity or at least kind of activity that comes with law enforcement in. The banks have no incentive to keep law enforcement out of it, and in fact, now they have every incentive to bring them in. So there's not a chance that a financial institution that has any idea that this is a ransomware payment is going to get involved in a ransomware payment without you know, looking at the OFAC guidance and seeing that they have to call law enforcement. And so you, you can, and I think that the the little part in the state, in, in the, the advisory about strict liability was very considered because it's telling these financial institutions, you'll be in trouble if you make this payment and you don't even know about it. So you'll be better, you better find out about it and make sure these payments don't happen. And so for all of those reasons, I think it's big, even though if you just read it on the surface, 
it doesn't look that much different than the last advisory, but I just think that the focus on the, you know, the, the financial institutions and all of the other service providers in the in the loop, telling them don't do it unless you talk to us, you know, is 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 a big change. Having said that, I mean, you know, you and I have have worked on these matters before, and and I actually think there are some, you know, huge advantages to victim companies of getting law enforcement involved especially if they're going to make the payment. But, you know, in some instances, law enforcement has been very helpful in deciding whether or not it's even, you know, in their interest to make the payment because some of these groups who do the ransomware attacks are big, you know, organized groups that some of which are on sanction lists and and really are able to carry it out. But there's a lot of copycat groups that are out there that can't. And law enforcement is usually in a better position to assess, like, who the real threats are and who they are. And so sometimes, you know, it might be, in the company's interest not to make the payment because they, they aren't really facing any threat. They just don't know it. So so I do think it's it's interesting and it creates huge incentives to report to law enforcement. I, I don't know how I feel about that, but I definitely feel that it's a change. Yeah. The other thing I would add to that, th- that's a very good point. I think that the thumb, the thumb has always been on the scale when it comes to the government communications on this of come, please come to us and tell us about this. You know, and that's obviously a pretty self-serving statement in many ways for the government because they want to have better visibility into who these actors are and what they're doing and what kind of infrastructure they're using and the MO behind these attacks, et cetera. However, um, you know, I do think that uh, there is something to be said, as Tim just said, for kind of helping to better vet and better consider your options if you are um, if you are talking to law enforcement. And on top of it, it is becoming harder and harder to keep these things quiet. The idea that anybody thinks they're going to suffer a ransomware attack and nobody's going to know about it, and you can quietly pay the ransom and get access to your data, it is is very very difficult to to swallow. Quite frankly, if you're a public company, you're going to probably have reporting obligations to the SEC. If you're some other kind of inst- if you're any other kind of institution, you may there may other otherwise be you know other um, reporting obligations. Not to mention the fact that if you're of any kind of consequence or size or scale, it's just going to be known that you have been attacked. I mean, there's just it's just not very easy to keep these things quiet. And so the fact that it's going to become public knowledge that you've been attacked, and if you try to quietly deal with it without involving law enforcement and perhaps going through um, you know involving some some you know intermediaries that are you know perhaps just as unsavory as the people at the end of the chain that may have been you know behind the keyboard then that is not going to be doing you're not going to be doing yourself a service so i think it it just becomes it it, it does i think it's just another you know data data point or consideration factor that companies have to weigh when they're thinking about what to do here and at some point or another another almost everybody is going to have some some version of this that they're going to have to deal with, unfortunately, at, at the rate we're going. So if you haven't already. The the one thing I would add, it, it, the reason why I said I'm, I'm on the fence about where I am about kind of this change in tone is that if you take it out of this context um, and you put it in the context of kind of a, 
a human kidnapping, which is what these are like, right? I mean, that's where ransomware comes from. It's kind of an analogy to the ransom note that you get during a kidnapping. Just imagine if a government agency came out and said to parents whose children had been kidnapped, um, don't you dare pay the ransom because there are other crimes that you could get involved with. And if you do, if you do, and hey, banks and anybody else who might help these people who are victims of a crime pay a ransom, if you help, you could go to jail too. Like that is a weird message for the government to say, be saying, even though I, like, I think there are lots of good reasons that they want to get law enforcement involved in these. And even though I think they have good reasons for not wanting companies who are victims to make these payments, it is, it seems a little heavy handed. And if they did it in a different context, I could see people being shocked. I mean, here it's OFAC, yeah. so they're yeah. not as shocked. And as we, and as we've said before, I mean, if you're going to involve if you're going to involve one government agency, you're going to likely want to involve multiple government agencies. You're not going to just call OFAC. You're probably going to call OFAC and the FBI and or the Secret Service or, um, you know, some other your local U.S. attorney's office or whatever the case may be, depending on what your company's relationships are with with sort of, you know, government writ large. And then you often cede a certain degree of control over the over how you handle things at that point, which is a complicated thing to weigh, especially in the immediate aftermath of something like this, where you're worried about you know just being able to operate your your business or your hospital or your educational institution or whatever the case may be. So it's um it, it's these are these are incredibly difficult, complex issues. We're not suggesting that there's sort of a one size fits all here. I think this is just an, it's a little additional kind of spice and a little additional kind of, um, you know, uh, flavor that now gets added into the mix based on the re- the, mo- the new guidance, the new advisory, as Tim said, I think this does kind of, it does kind of reorient slightly sort of what the official kind of government positions are on, on some of this in the U.S. and and how companies should be thinking about this as they're weighing what to do in in the um, in the immediate aftermath. And obviously, for anybody who's in the who's in that ecosystem of intermediaries, I think if you're not already, you know, sort of well aware of this and thinking about what you should be doing to um, decide whether or not you want to be part of this or how you can sort of do that in a compliant way, um, certainly I think the wake up call was sounded on this a while back and is now just being kind of re. Uh, you know, the alarm is being rung again to, you know, make sure everybody is is on top of this. So, so anyway, I think that's a pretty, uh, as Tim said, I think this is, you know, it, it's a it's a significant one. I think got a lot of attention, a lot of coverage when it first um, dropped about two weeks ago, and so we did want to lead with that one because um, there is a, uh, you know, this is one also that's just going to continue to evolve, and we're going to see more designations here, and we're going to see more guidance put out we're going to we're going to see how this thing goes as the sort of ransomware epidemic continues on um for the foreseeable future yeah uh, i mean i'll be curious because i you know companies sometimes want to make these payments to keep going and so so you know this this thumb on the scale of don't make the payments like what happens if if you you know what ha- what would have happened if you know, Dominion hadn't made the payment during. Right. And there've been a couple of high profile. Yeah. And there've been a couple of high profile ones recently where that they've acknowledged that they've made the payment and, um, you know, and, and so I think there's, I think there's a clearly a growing feeling in government that people perhaps think that that is the way to go. And, and they clearly want to weigh in on the other side of that. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how this evolves. It's, it's a bit of a wild card, but, 
um, that's that's what we have on that's what we have to start with. So again, hopefully we have not been hacked or received a ransomware request in the or ransom request in the middle of this first segment. But with that, let's move on to a a slightly more esoteric topic that is of great interest to me and Tim and sanctions nerds um, around the world, but perhaps not as not as broadly appealing, which is Directive Four and Russia and a recent settlement announced by OFAC. We got some more web notices to talk about. <laughs> so so on September 27th. Um, OFAC announced the settlement with Cameron International Corporation for potential civil liability for violations of the Ukraine-related sanctions regulations. And as you pointed out, Brian, uh, Directive 4 is was at issue in this, and, and we haven't had very many enforcement actions related to the, the sectoral sanctions against Russia, so it's worth talking about this a little bit. Um, so the fine was $1.4 million, which in this area is not a huge fine, but it resulted from um, some, some sales that Cameron Romania had made to Gazprom Neft, um, and it was for use in an offshore oil project in the Arctic. Directive 4 um, kind of should have been like a bells and whistles going off because Directive 4 is the, the sectoral sanction that if you have a listed party and, and they were dealing with Gazprom Neft, which Gazprom owns and Gazprom is subject to Directive 4, um, when you have a listed party, the, the restriction is that a U.S. person cannot provide uh, exploration or production assistance, and that's usually in the form of services, in the form of goods, it's potentially in the form of technology or equipment, if the project is uh, owned by a Directive 4 entity and located in either the Russian Arctic uh, offshore or uh, shale. And so here we had an Arctic project, it was owned by Gazprom, you had Cameron that was being asked to provide um, services, but they did have a, for, it was a foreign subsidiary, and this this is a directive that applies only to U.S. persons, and so I think there probably was some thinking at the time um, that this is, a, this is not a U.S. person, and so they can provide these sorts of services. The problem is, and this is this is the reason that this enforcement action is is important, and the reason that it's worth spending a little time talking about it is that even though many sanctions programs only apply to U.S. persons, or at least the direct restrictions only apply to U.S. persons, facilitation is so easy in these circumstances, especially if you have a U.S. parent and a subsidiary. And that's what happened to Cameron here: is that you know, Cameron was U.S. based. Uh, its subsidiary was making these sales, but there were a number of U.S. persons that were involved in the approval chain. Uh, and so OFAC uh, looked at this and determined that it was worth um, not only imposing a penalty, but also sending its little message that involved um, highlighting the importance of large U.S. firms with international operations, evaluating the totality of their business processes for risk exposure. Even large, sophisticated companies with OFAC compliance programs face sanctions risks if they do not develop internal controls that account for day-to-day -day operations and procedures, and consider how a variety of types of different types of conduct can implicate applicable pr provisions. I mean, what this boils down to is that you had a big company, they went through their compliance program, they got a mitigating factor because they did have a you know good functioning compliance program. But what they, they missed is what I think a lot of companies miss in this area is that no matter how good your compliance program is, if you're a US company and you have US persons kind of interspersed throughout your ranks, it is very hard to wall all of those people off in the way that you would need to in order to have a subsidiary do something that the US parent can. And that's what got Cameron in trouble here, and that's what has gotten lots of companies in trouble. 
Yeah. So I do mean, you want to talk about this now and move to, to SRL quickly, or do you want to just talk? Well, about yeah, it? I want to talk about this. So, um, cause I do think this is the, probably the more interesting of the two, um, totally. in terms of the, you know, at the end of the day, this boiled down to us persons who were approving and reviewing contracts and other documents relating to the services that or the goods that were going to be provided to this um, entity that was subject to Directive 4. And so, again, under Directive 4, U.S. persons cannot provide services that are going to be in support of a, a project covered by Directive 4 if, if, the, if they're dealing with an entity that is subject to those restrictions, which in this case they were. And, you know, the idea that, and this is one of those, to me, the reason this is interesting is this is one of those classic cases where, again, as Tim said, they had a they had a compliance program in place. They had by all by all signs they had a pretty robust compliance program in place. But this is sort of a little gap that nobody really thought of right. in terms of the execution and the implementation and the in the real world when we're going through our process of approving certain things and we call back to business persons in the United States and ask them to sign off on, yes, can we enter this contract? And they say, yes, that is the provision of a service that is prohibited by Directive 4. If it is, if it is, if it is involving a Directive 4 entity and it is, it is involving a project that is covered by Directive 4. And that, that is exactly what happened here. So this is one of those kind of, to me, it's sort of one of those classic gaps that, and, and again, in fairness, this was, when this all happened, you know, this is, Several. This is now several years ago. So this was in the early yeah, six ish, or seven, I think. Yeah, this is in the early er days of Directive Four being even yep. out in the world, right? This is this is pre Katza, yep. um, and this is sort of you know the the contours of this, the understanding of this, um, are, are a little perhaps a little less well understood, a little less less well developed. Um, essentially, this. It, it sounds from the notice that this kind of got flagged and got caught after after Cameron was purchased and there was a sort of post-merger integration review of compliance issues and this was caught and then there was um, there was they began sort of uh, cooperating with OFAC thereafter. So that that is how a lot of these things come up. And uh, again, to Tim's point, I just think it is a um, the idea that we talked about this a little bit the last time when we were talking about you know doing euro, doing transactions in euros um, that were dealing with Iran and, and there was a feeling that this, that was okay, but it was, a, it was a sub of a U.S. entity that was doing those. So there you're running afoul of the Iran regs here with same with directive four. It's the idea that you have a non U S sub that's doing the business, but then you still are not properly walling off or recusing U S persons from any aspect of that. Um, it's not that the business itself is, necessarily prohibitive is being done by non-US part of the company. It's the fact that as a practical matter, it's really difficult to completely wall off all US persons from any kind of role in the decision making chain or the or, you know, if there had been where we see a lot is that if goods go and then somebody would call back for a maintenance issue or a technical advice on on how to repair something or how to um, implement some new uh, some new change to the equipment. And they call back to the U.S., then voila, you have potentially a violation of Directive Four if you've not sort of sufficiently walled those people off. So it's just a, it's just a reminder that as a practical matter, a it's hard to spot this stuff on the first end, on the front end, and b it's hard to execute in practice and have no and have have this be airtight. It's just very difficult to do. 
part of the problem, I mean, and, and we've come across this in a lot of different places, and including, you know, when there was this general license age back in Iran. It, it, what you need to do to comply with U.S. sanctions law is the almost the opposite of what you would want to do to, to run your business. So you have these foreign subsidiaries controlled by, you know, U.S. ownership because you want to be able to have some control over what these foreign companies are doing. And they're essentially, you're essentially running them to benefit the U.S. business. And that means that the U.S. ought to know what its foreign subsidiaries are doing and be somewhat involved in the approval of, you know, at least reasonably large size contracts. On the other hand, the more you have U.S. involvement, the less a foreign sub can do from a sanctions perspective. And so you've got this tension between, you know, U.S. business people want to keep their hand in the pie and know what the sub is doing. And U.S., you know, sanctions law says if you do that, then that's U.S. action. And so the sub can't do things that it might otherwise be able to do from a sanctions perspective. So I think we see that a lot. Um, and I think this case was a good example of that. I do have one question for you, Brian, because I don't know the answer to it. I thought maybe you would. Um I don't understand why they didn't get voluntary disclosure credit, and they they don't say. So they, yeah, there's they a, they're this... a little they're a little cryptic about that. Yeah. They also they also got no they also got no haircut off. Did you notice that they got no haircut yeah. off the base penalty amount? So they they said the base civil monetary penalty amount is 1.4 million. The settlement amount reflects no further mitigation from the base penalty, which is pretty rare that you see that in one of these. So I agree. We don't know. And, and it was just this is so something cryptic. that's this is something that's a little unknowable in terms of what what went on behind the scenes here. But that that is something that's worth noting because we just we just don't know. But I I did notice they that they, as well. They submitted a notice of apparent violation to OFAC. Followed by the submission of an additional report in December 17th, which is, you know, what you normally do in a voluntary disclosure context is your like final report after you do the investigation. I suspect that they six months later. I suspect OFAC may have known about it through some independent source. Right. And that that's why they didn't get credit. Right. I I suspect that's why. That's most likely why. But I but it's unclear from the notice. So but yeah, I had that same question and I had the same question about why no no mitigation from the base penalty amount, which is pretty which is pretty unusual. Well, and, and, you know, to just twist over to, to Schlumberger very quickly, I mean, that was the same deal in Schlumberger is that they, it, it, in a penalty action that was going on around the same time and announced on the same day, they didn't get any voluntary disclosure credit either, even though it looked like they had tried to make a voluntary disclosure, you know, unless, unless OFAC, I mean, the only thing that I could think of was that OFAC was being very you know, hyper-technical and saying you, you called it a notice of apparent violation, not a voluntary disclosure, so we're not giving you credit. But I don't think that was what was going on. I suspect it, that they knew about it beforehand, that Schlumberger was trying to make a voluntary disclosure. It, it, could, so it, was, it, it you know, could honestly, it could, and we're speculating here, so totally. don't read too much into this, but it could be because of the resolution that, that had been reached in the other matter, right? the historical matter for Schlumberger, yep. that there were certain obligations they were under to be sharing information, and it could be that it was viewed as it. it was viewed as related to that, and that, that's that why you're not, they're not going to get the credit. That could be I, it. I, all I, sorts I, of reasons, but it was it was notable because yeah. it seemed like they had tried and were were not being given right, credit right. for. Correct. It. Um, and just very quickly to turn to the Schlumberger enforcement action, because this was another company that Schlumberger had had purchased, um, and 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 wound up purchasing some some civil liability, uh, was that 
you know, this was classic facilitation in the other Schlumberger enforcement example. It's the example that OFAC gives. You had Schlumberger and the U.S. employees getting requests to uh, do business in what was then a sanctioned country, Sudan, and um, knowing that they couldn't do the business, they forwarded the they forwarded the um, the request to the Canadian subsidiary, which did not have sanctions against Sudan, so that the Canadian subsidiary could do the same business. Um, and that, you know, is, as OVAC has said many times, is, you know, almost a, the classic example of facilitation. You essentially know you can't do the business, but you facilitate uh, a non-U.S. person in doing it. It's yep. it's what's not allowed under the sanctions. Right. I, I don't have much more to say other than No, that. I, I think, just... I, I don't either. And honestly, this is a question that we, this is one of the most common questions we get on just kind of a regular basis, which is, well, we're worried about facilitation risk. Is this facilitation? And nine, nine times out of 10, the answer is no, this is not facilitation. Here's why. Here's what facilitation is. To Tim's point, I think this is kind of a classic case of what is actually facilitation, which is a U.S. person who is not able to pursue the business, him or herself, or the company itself, and, and forwards it to a, a colleague outside the U.S., um, and thereby essentially allows that uh, business to be pursued um, by the the non-U.S. entity, and that's that's kind of the classic uh, example of this. And I think that's right. kind of what this embodies, and that's why you don't we don't we don't see. I think every year maybe there's one or one or two of these that come up, and and it is an important it is a very important point just from a right. black letter sanctions compliance standpoint to remind people in compliance and people in your business sort of what is and is not facilitation what you can't do and and the, they note here that the people who were involved had had some training uh, on on this and right. related topics on this and, po- that's this exact yeah. point i think yeah. and, and with respect to sudan it I is mean, it an was... e- i mean in fairness it is an easy one to sort of screw up quite frankly oh, totally. because you, you totally. know as a common sense matter you, it might not occur to you that this is a this is problematic if you're not sort of rooted to what's in the regs and what are we allowed to do and not allowed to do. But for those who are aware of the concept of facilitation and know that this is something they have to be on the lookout for, this is I think a this is kind of a, an example of that, obviously. Well, and I think I think they you know gave it as almost a remedial example to say, right. look, you know, this company actually had a compliance program. They were training on this issue, and you know they they emphasize in the little lessons learned that you have to take steps to ensure that all relevant personnel receive and then highlight and understand existing sanctions prohibitions. And so so like like th- this was one where they. They could show. I'm sure the company came in and said, "Hey, you know, we trained our people on this. It's not our fault." And right. OFAC said, to a certain extent, said, "Yeah, kind of agree, but you've got to make sure that when the training gets done, it actually they're does abiding something. by it." Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, anyway, so those are two kind of interrelated, interesting uh, enforcement action settlements that were just released that are um, we thought were worth worth covering. And with that, let's. Let's move now. Let's let's uh, head back into the criminal realm uh, to deal with one big ticket item that just got resolved, which is the um, the resolution of uh, Meng Wanzhou's case, Huawei CFO, which had been pending for a long time, which we have covered extensively on the pod, uh, and which somewhat surprisingly was resolved just a little less than two weeks ago with a deferred prosecution agreement, which I do not think anybody was expecting in part because it certainly 
seemed as if the DOJ and the U.S. government had drawn a line in the sand that they were, this is one, you know, given all the uh, trouble that has been um, and the battles that have happened over extradition from Canada, of course, she's been held in, she's been in British Columbia in, in Vancouver for the last couple of years. Uh, and they were getting close to um, perhaps a final uh, decision from the Canadian courts on that. Everything to date had been favorable for the U.S. on that. But this was obviously quite an anchor in terms of the diplomatic strife that it was creating between not only the U.S. and China, but also Canada and China. And of course, there were two Canadian citizens who had been detained and held by the Chinese, accused of essentially being spies, seen as being a pretty direct tit for tat for their part in the extradition proceedings, which I'll come back to in just a second, because amazingly enough, that got resolved on the on the heels of this uh, pretty, pretty uh, much immediately. Um, and so I think the the idea that this case was resolved through a DPA, I will say among my former DOJ cohort, and obviously I, I know personally know some of the people who were involved in this case and among the alums of my old office at DOJ National Security Division, I think there was a lot of surprise and a lot of uh, disappointment that this is the way that this went down um, because it seems to send the message and a lot of the press coverage has found, has um, has hit on this as well that um, China can sort of use its bully pulpit and its leverage to um, essentially take hostage a few other uh, individuals to counterbalance what what we had been saying, what the United States had been saying all along was a was a straightforward, objective application of our laws and was a righteous prosecution of somebody who had done something pretty egregious, which is to say that they had lied to and committed bank fraud and wire fraud uh, to a major financial institution and lying about the fact that they were doing business in that Huawei was doing business in Iran um, and not only doing business in Iran, but had had some subsidiaries and affiliates that were based in Iran. And so the idea that, um, you know, the all along, I think the the accusation from China and others was, well, this is the U.S. kind of politicizing its sanctions laws to. Um, make a point to China or to sort of get some leverage in the trade negotiations with China. I was asked, I think, many times, as I think Tim was as well, and right after Meng was arrested originally, um, whether this was some kind of masterstroke by the U.S. to exert leverage on China in the trade negotiations. And I said, I really don't think so, because I think this is sort of dumb luck that they were able to get their hands on her and, and arrest her when they did. And it just happened to coincide with when things were really heating up in the trade wars with U.S. and China. But now, in the way that this has now been kind of backed out, it sort of looks a lot like that's really all this was. And of course, China took every opportunity to sort of play that angle up. They released the two Canadians right away to make it look like a spy swap, which is something, of course, that the U.S. and Russia used to do during the Cold War. And it makes it look like this was just a political prosecution. And there was nothing to it. I, I do not subscribe to that. I think that there is a lot of meat on the bone to the case against Meng and the case against Huawei. I am not in any sense validating that. But it, but the optics of this now are sort of the the waters have been muddied. The the sort of circumstances have been mur you know made even more murky by all of this. And if you look at and I will just add this before I throw it to Tim. In all in all respects, it looks like this is. 
I will say, I hate to say it, but I will say a bit of an L for the for DOJ in this, in that it looks like a weak resolution of a of a case that they probably could have prevailed on if they had writ, written this all out. Um, and now that's me Monday morning quarterbacking a little bit. I know that there are a thousand other considerations that go into why you do something like this or why you agree to something like this. And what DOJ really hangs their hat on, and they go all in on this. And if you look at the press release and look at all of the quotes from all of the government officials, this is this is the this is the win for them. Is that she admitted to lying to the banks? That she she even though. She did not plead guilty. She admitted to lying to the to HSBC. She admitted to lying to the banks, and that that now is going to be a, a you know the linchpin or a linchpin of the prosecution of Huawei, the company that is still ongoing, and that is what they lean into heavily in terms of what what their big takeaway is. Putting aside the fact that she returned to China to a, a hero's welcome, that China then released the two Canadian um, prisoners. And made it look like this was just a political deal, which the U.S. has totally disavowed that that was the case and that this was coordinated. And that China has just done that to try to, you know, essentially give a middle finger to the U.S. and the Canadians to make it look like this was all orchestrated and it just a big political dust up all along. But it is the fact that she admitted to lying and that that is really what unstuck this whole case is that when her lawyers came forward and said, here's our compromise solution, she will admit to in a statement of facts that she misled and lied to the bank, but she's not going to take a guilty plea. And that was the middle ground that was reached. And that's what, that's what ultimately um, resolved this case. And, you know, look, in some ways, this is a bit of a unicorn of a case because to take somebody this high profile and a company this high profile that is so, you know, integral to, to China and it's, and it's sort of economic strategy and it's global um, image it it is it is it is difficult to disentangle her case from all of those things, and so I grant you that this is much higher degree of difficulty than your average criminal case to try to resolve for those reasons. That being said, I think there are a lot of people who are highly critical of this resolution, and they feel like she got off easy, and it's because she's a person of influence who was backed by the Chinese government that she is now. You know, she was living in her mansion in Vancouver. Now she's back living in her mansion, presumably in China, and is going to go on her merry way and thumb her nose at the U.S. government and the Chinese and the Canadian government for the rest of her, the rest of her days, presumably. Um, that she kind of got got away scot free, more or less, um, at, not having had to plead guilty to this to these charges. So, in any event, that's a lot. But I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of feelings <laughs> on this. Um, I know you do too. So let me turn it over to you, and then we can we can uh, take it from there. So first, let me congratulate our friends over at Zuckerman and, and Bill Taylor. Um, yeah. For, tip of for, the hat. For, tip uh, of the hat. Yeah. It, it, some no great doubt. defense. Great no defense doubt. work. I mean, look, this is a win for Mrs. Meng. I mean, I don't care how you wrap it up. Um, she wanted her liberty. She's home in China to a hero's welcome, completely at liberty. With the DPA conditions, when you read through them, the first part of them, you know, you're kind of shocked because, like, they were very clear to negotiate everything, and so she was going to you know, get on the plane and she was not going to have reporting obligations. And they were very clear that she was basically going to be completely unrestrained in her liberty. And she was going to be required to abide by the terms of the DPA, but good luck in enforcing that because, you know, pretrial services is not all that 
all that keen to go. They're to, not effective you know, on keeping tags on on, they're uh, not on prisoners in, a, in Beijing. No, they're not. Or in Shenzhen, a, rather. A, in a, Shenzhen. A, they're, they're not doing drop-by visits in Shenzhen to see if, nope. if Mrs. Meng is honoring the terms of the DPA. No, they're not. <laughs> so, so, the, so the ability to catch violations of this DPA are, are pretty close to zero. Um, and and you know I, I too was was struck and and I, you know DOJ has to take its victories where it finds them and so you know that the the exhibit to the DPA in which you know the facts were laid out in pretty pretty great detail and she's she now is prohibited um, from ever contesting those facts in a U.S. court will be helpful to DOJ in its case against Huawei and it will be it will be helpful you know and it will be harmful if Mrs. Mang ever were to you know. Um, Run afoul of the terms of the DPA and be prosecuted for this, but but the the fact is is that she wanted her liberty and she got it, and they wanted you know some sort of criminal case against her and really didn't. And the reason, in my view, that she didn't really boils down to, and it's not just because I'm here. I mean, it's Canada. The extradition proceedings had gone pretty well for the government, although the first decision, um, you know did rely on what the court stated was a question of first impression about whether there's a bunch of Canadian cases under the Fugitive Slave Act about not enforcing U.S. law when U.S. law is different from Canadian law. And, and the Canadian court decided, and, and, and probably reasonably so, I think it would have been upheld, that the Fugitive Slave Act was different than the Iran sanctions and that this was a little bit of a twist on the Iran sanctions um, because of the bank fraud issues. But But that one was you know, not a slam dunk, but the one that was coming up involving the, the cell phone, as I understand it, also would not have been necessarily a slam dunk because there were arguments that they had done things to her cell phone that they weren't supposed to do. I think it was the Canadian um, police at the U.S. instigation, but I'm not positive about that. But I know that there were issues with the cell phone as well in the extradition proceedings. So it's going to be a while. Um, and you had against that backdrop, you had these two Canadian citizens, Mr. Um, Spavor and, and the Michaels. Yeah. And Michaels who, who were, who were basically being held for ransom until Mrs. Meng was returned. And Canada was not anxious, even if this, the extradition had been a slam dunk, I think Canada was not anx anxious to extradite and then kind of have Mr. Spaver and Mr. Michaels face the wrath. Um, and so I, I think from Canada's perspective, this was a great settlement. So, you know, for for my 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 current the the, the country in which I am currently um hanging out for a little while, uh, I think was the big winner here because Canada is doesn't have to to face the, the the music in the sense that, you know, probably on the law, the extradition was valid, but there were some tough issues. Certainly on the, uh, on the does Canada want to extradite Mrs. Meng to the U.S. and know that that's going to mean that you know, two of its citizens are probably going to get held forever for no reason. No, I mean, Canada certainly didn't want to do that. So I think Canada is kind of breathing the biggest sigh of relief here now that they're kind of out from the middle between the U.S. and China on this issue. And and pretty much, I mean, you know, I, I was going to say unscathed, but Canada, Canadian, two Canadian citizens were not unscathed at all. I mean, right. Canada is coming out of it looking just fine and didn't have to make that impossible choice between extradition, you know, and and satisfying the U.S. or not extraditing and satisfying the Chinese. So I think Canada not being in the middle probably created some of the leverage for this, too. Right. Agreed. Agreed. I think the closest U.S. ally being caught in the middle of this crossfire did not help matters in terms of, you know, allowing the U.S. government to really hold a tough line 
the toughest line perhaps as it might have wanted to at the end of the day. I think the I'll end with this, which is just a couple of sort of questions for for us to ponder, which is, you know, obviously the political dynamics at play here are about as complex as they could possibly get for that, for the reasons you just described, because of the three countries involved, because of the nature of what Huawei is and what it represents, because of the fact that U.S. sanctions and Iran are in the middle of this, uh, you know, the global financial system is in the middle of this. There's, you know, this is about as complicated as it could possibly get in terms of disentangling something like this. So I guess my question is, and, and some version of this has been asked in a number of, you know, think pieces and otherwise that I've seen since the resolution was announced is, you know, does this signal to China that they have the ability to, you know, in, engage in essentially what's referred to as hostage diplomacy whenever they see fit. If some if some high profile executive or some high profile individual is uh, caught up in a case in the U.S. that it has a political dynamic to it, does that just mean that they grab a couple of U.S. citizens or a couple of Canadian citizens or what have you and and, you know, th this is not we've seen this before. This is not a new ploy. But is this is this going to embolden the Chinese government to do that more often? That's question one. And question two, has this in some way damaged as a precedential matter the value of deploying U.S. sanctions authorities in this way to aggressively go after an individual like Mrs. Meng for you know, lying to a major global financial institution and because it relates to Iran and and is completely undercutting the basis of um, U.S. sanctions. Does this in, in any way weaken or water down the ability of the U.S. to sort of, you know, have full faith that it can enforce in certainly in the criminal context, it's, it's sanctions authorities going forward. I don't know that I have answers to those questions. I, I, I think I think those are more rhetorical to think about. I know you'll have a few thoughts, but I think those are the kind of lasting big picture things because there could be some there could be some aftershocks that we see from this case that are not going to be seen for a while. And so I think that that's worth bearing in mind uh, that everybody should you know you know keep keep an eye keep an eye and an ear open as to how this plays out over the next few years, perhaps even. Those are those are great questions. I mean, I, I have I have some some thoughts, some quick thoughts. I knew I knew on, you would. I knew you, you would. Yeah, just I mean, even though they are rhetorical, I have some quick thoughts. So so one is, I, I, in some ways, this case I think is kind of a one-off, and so it probably won't have that you know sort of really bad effect. That's kind of on the one hand, and the reason I think that is because. I don't think this p prosecution was at all political when it started, and and I and I, I'm not sure it ever was a political prosecution in that sense. But the but the um the arrest of Mrs. Meng as she was transiting Canada was pretty aggressive, and so I I do think that that probably created some of the backdrop against what you saw as the Chinese reaction is not just the the prosecution of her, but kind of doing what they would were probably viewed as kidnapping her off a flight in which she wasn't really in the U.S. Yeah, if she, so, had, flown, if she had been flying to Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco or something like that and had been grabbed at the airport, I think it, I think it is. I think you're right. I think that 
I think that takes away a lot of the salacious political conspiratorial aspects of all of this, right? But 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 what makes me a little more pessimistic about it? So that so I think this case is unusual in that sense, and that created a dynamic in which this sort of thing could happen. I'm not justifying it for that reason, but I think that it's that fact pattern is less likely to be repeated because I I did think that 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 arrest wasn't well thought out. Um, it didn't seem like they they realized how mad China would be and and what a predicament the Canadians would be in for doing this and and didn't hadn't really kind of gamed that out as to how that would play out and so I I, I think they you know as long as there isn't this sort of really aggressive type action um, I think that you know you might not have this sort of aggressive type reaction that we've seen but. The, the the reason that I'm not that confident in that is because I, I also think this was in part a function of what what happened during during the Trump era, and I'm not sure that that it's over. Which is, there was this kind of view that that all actions, all prosecutorial actions, were political. I mean, we had a president who was calling prosecutorial actions looking into his administration a witch hunt, and everything that they did was a witch hunt, and and talking and and making threats to go after the, his rival in the 2016 campaign and to lock her up, and it just made it seem like the the it made it seem to the outside that there was this that 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 you could point to the U.S. justice system as a political system that wasn't really a legal system, and that that would justify what what China ultimately did to the Canadians and the kind of, at the end of the day, throwing their arms up in the air and saying, it was all political, this was just a political swap, and that's what happened. I, I don't think you can disassociate that from what was going on in the United States at the time, and to some extent still is. You have this incredibly increased atmosphere of politicization in the in the justice system and in that atmosphere it really is easy to take advantage of it from the other side if the justice system depoliticizes i think that the environment gets less ripe for that if people have more confidence that a prosecution of someone from china is just about you know the facts and the law as opposed to part of the big you know, China war that, that the Trump administration had declared, at least on the trade side, and then, you know, kind of wrapped up in the idea that they had made it okay for the highest levels of the U.S. government to say, yeah, all the Justice Department is doing is just political, and any prosecution that we don't think is, you know, of, of anybody close to us is political. It just creates an environment in which people can get more aggressive as the Chinese were here. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and I will say that uh, that is definitely part of that is definitely part of the equation here. No doubt that that sort of hangover from the way the um, arrest and initial extradition proceedings were handled, and some of the rhetoric that came out of the White House and other and, and DOJ in the Trump era. I will say that anytime. DOJ has a charge on somebody and they travel to a country where they could potentially be arrested and extradited, they're going to take the opportunity to try to do that. Like no doubt, like that is, that is just going to happen. And that is a fact in law and law enforcement reality. And I think that is, that is, that is in truth, divorce from politics. However, I, your point is a hundred percent spot on that. I think it become or has become at least much more difficult, you know, publicly to kind of divorce those things or to not assume that there is perhaps some ulterior motive driving that type of a decision. And I, and I also agree with your point that in this specific case, given how complex the issues were and the dynamics were going to be and the, and the repercussions were going to be, 
perhaps they said, damn the consequences, we're going to arrest her and we're going to get her down to the U.S. We don't care. But I, but I tend to agree that perhaps it was not foreseen sort of what a mess this was going to ultimately end up making, especially for, for Canada. Damn. I think that's right. So in any event, all right, well, we'll leave that alone for now. Uh, and that perhaps is the last time we'll talk about Mrs. Meng. I don't know. I wouldn't I... be surprised if we if we come back to that at some point. That's a, I don't think a long-standing, we're going to... long-standing favorite topic on Embargoed, but um, but in any event, we'll, we'll leave yeah. that for now. Um, and with yeah. that, could be. With that, well, certainly not the last time we're going to talk about Huawei, so we know that we'll we'll be back before too long. Um, and so with that, let's pause for the lightning round sound effect. And with that, we're gonna we're gonna actually go to a bit of a bizarro flip side of Mrs. Meng's case, which is um, a case in SDNY that was also just resolved, but um, a better outcome for DOJ and also somewhat maybe a little bit surprising, uh, and that's. Um, the case of the Ethereum developer, Virgil Griffith, uh, and I'll turn that to Tim. Yes, yeah, so we have talked about this case before on the podcast. I, I, I think we talked about it when Mr. Griffith was in, indicted in January of this year, or January of 2020. Wow, time really flies. Um, but but so Mr. Cri- Griffith was known as the the crypto bro, or at least he has been in some of the reporting on this and some of the you know some of the blogs as well. Um, he is a is a cryptocurrency expert, um, U.S. person who apparently lived in Singapore at the time, was invited to go to a conference in the DPRK to talk about cryptocurrency, and he went to the conference and he spoke about cryptocurrency and he was then charged with providing services uh, to the people's uh, or to the people's republic or democratic people's republic of korea the dprk um and and the, you know it was basically violating the the korea embargo um he pled guilty uh very recently to those charges or at least to con- conspiracy to violating the um north korea sanctions uh and you know, there was some. We, we've talked about this offline a little bit, and it it, it is a little bit puzzle. Puzz, we, we I'd like to see what a jury would have to say about this, and I know you've expressed that sentiment even more strongly than I have. In part because what he actually did here to violate the sanctions was so innocuous. I mean, he went to a conference and basically answered questions, some of which came from the you know government officials at the DPRK, but others came from other attendees at the conference about cryptocurrency um, in a public forum, at least, or at least, you know, an open forum where there were not lots of people who weren't from the DPRK present as well. This, you know, it's hard to believe that a jury would have automatically convicted it for willfulness on those facts. Now, there was a, there was another fact about this case that I'm, and I'm going to throw it over to you, Brian, because I'm not sure how I feel about it. So, the other fact that I think would have been much more problematic in front of a jury, although maybe it shouldn't have been, is that before going to this conference, um, Mr. Griffith had asked the State Department to, for permission to travel to North Korea. A- as I understand it, there is a law that uh, allows the State Department to you know, not allow U.S. passports to go travel to particular p- cases, and the State Department has invoked that law with respect to Korea, most likely because the the law that, um, the, you know, the statute under which the, Korea, the, the North Korea sanctions um, have been uh, a, adopted under, the statute that allows for the regulations, um, expressly 
forbids OFAC and the president from carving out travel. So, so this is a, you know, it's IEPA, it's the International Economic Emergency Powers Act. And under IEPA, there is a travel carve out so that you can't sanction travel, which is why, you know, most of the sanctions don't apply to travel. Now, the, they had decided to use this passport provision to restrict travel to, to Korea. But I, it's not even clear to me that that is really a restriction on U.S. persons. It's basically a, a practical restriction because most company or most countries want you to be able to travel somewhere using a valid passport and if the US withholds permission then then it, they the country that that accepts you might not accept you because you don't have a, a valid passport that is backed up by your government but but it's not clear to me that going without the permission of the state department was a US problem it was one that the US was trying to essentially use to keep travel from going to DPRK but it it's not charged in the indictment and it doesn't seem like that's what that, that's what they're saying he did wrong by traveling without the State Department permission. But to me, in front of a jury, that would have been the only fact that would have gone to willfulness. Yeah, to me, that that is, well, I think it's sort of two things. That, that certainly goes to, I think you hit the nail on the head. That is the thing that I am most curious about as somebody who spent a lot of years thinking about and worrying about whether or not there was sufficient evidence of willfulness to prove up violations of IEPA. Uh, the idea that traveling to speak at a conference and to mostly discuss at least the way it was argued in the papers, the way it's been reported that um, share sort of publicly available information about cryptocurrency and blockchain and the rest and, and the like would amount to uh, a knowing purposeful, uh, you know, Mr. G it could be proved that Mr. Griffith knew what he was doing was illegal, which is the, the definition of willfulness, knew what he was doing was a violation of the North Korea sanctions regs uh, in providing services, providing, providing prohibited services to North Korea. To me, that's a that's a very open question, whether that would be the case and whether they could have, you know, shown um, beyond a reasonable doubt that that was the case. I think the, I think the, the State Department kind of, you know, forbidding him or, or refusing to grant him permission or grant him a visa or grant him authorization to travel, that certainly goes to that. Um, but the idea that sitting in front of a room full of people and explaining, um, you know, the ins and outs of cryptocurrency and blockchain amounts to providing a service when you could argue, and it seemed by all accounts his lawyers were prepared to argue to the jury that this is information that the North Koreans could have and in fact do have access to otherwise to, right. because it is publicly available, you know, th that's, that's not a slam dunk defense, but it is, it is certainly a colorable defense. I think that that seemed to be what they were winding up and ready to do. Now, now look, we all know that, and Tim and I have both been on both. Oh, I've been on both sides of this and Tim has certainly been on this side on the defense side of things that when you're facing down a trial and you're facing down, what could come if you were convicted by a jury. There are many reasons that uh, defendants change their plea at the, at the very late stages pre-trial um, and decide to plead guilty. Many, many good reasons, good and valid reasons for doing that. And I, I, we don't know whether he was, he has any indication what, what his sentence may be. Uh, and he's going to be sentenced at some point next year. So we may, um, I'm sure we may come back to this at that point. But my only point is, this fact pattern was so peculiar in the grand scheme of things. Peculiar on the one hand, but also on the other for anybody who has ever, you know, given a talk anywhere where they worried that there might be people from a prohibited uh, country or that there 
um, you know, they're worried about uh, these types of things. This would have been interesting because we don't have case law really on this. So if there had been a jury verdict, if this had been appealed, if there had been something along those lines that could have perhaps fleshed out what the uh, what the bounds of the services, you know, willful provision of services in violation of the North Korea sanctions regulations could stand in for willful provision of services in in many other sanctions uh, programs, quite frankly, I, that would have been interesting to see. And so yeah. I think that's that's kind of to me, again, um, you know, by all accounts, this is uh, weighed heavily on Mr. Griffith. And, you know, I'm sure that the decision to plead guilty was not taken lightly. Uh, and so hopefully he will be able to get through his plea and his sentencing and move on with his life after this. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, from a from a sanctions nerd perspective, I would have loved to see kind of what what kind of law could have been made out of this case, quite frankly, is, is sort of what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, 99 percent of cases don't go to trial because there's so many strong incentives not to. I mean, you know, it's expensive to go to trial. Um, it takes a long time to go to trial. If you're locked up and you're waiting for trial and it takes a long time to go to trial, you spend a lot of time in jail even if you win the trial, which means it doesn't do you much good to win the trial. The sentences are longer if you if you the trial, trial than if you plead. Yep. Yeah. So so there's a lot of reasons. So I can understand, you know, why there may have been a guilty plea here. But just from a pure law nerd perspective, it, it it's really kind of a fascinating question because he was told not to travel to North Korea. But it's not illegal, and it's certainly not part of the sanctions against North Korea to travel to North Korea. But that's the main fact of willfulness: is that they told him not to go, and he went anyway. But it, but he's not being charged with going when he was told not to. He's being charged with speaking at a conference and knowing that by and and providing what appears to have been publicly available information. And by doing that, that that would be providing services to the North Korean government, which is sanctioned, and that that was and that he knew that that was illegal, not the travel, because the travel isn't what he's charged with. That strikes me as a really good question to see if jurors can really parse that, because it doesn't seem like they have much of a willfulness case, but for the travel, and the travel shouldn't count. So, you know, if I had been doing that case, I'd have been moving to exclude the evidence that he was told not to travel to North Korea because it, it may have been irre irrelevant. And he might have that if he could get gotten that excluded, he'd have gotten a lot better plea deal here. Right. I think that's right. So in any event, that's all we don't have much more to offer on that at, the, at this point. There's really not much that's been said publicly about this other than to announce the plea and that we now have a record on the docket that the plea's been entered. There's a sentencing coming up next year, as I said, but that's about it. So we'll keep an eye on that and we'll see what papers get filed in advance of the sentencing. And perhaps there'll be some uh, light shed on some of the circumstances that led to this and, and some of the other details uh, that, that will, uh, that will come, that will come out in advance of the sentencing. But for now we'll, we'll leave it with that. And so, um, so that's all we have for this week. That is our our four topic episode, which took over an hour because Tim and I can never manage to be, except for the last episode, which was in fact under an hour, our all lightning round episode. Um, but uh, I think that's all we have for this week. So thank you as always for joining us. Any parting words, parting thoughts? Um, are you gonna? No, I'm I'm looking forward to have having guests at some point. Um, yes, but but not we're not committing to a date. Not at this point. <laughs> We're tough. We're tough to pin down when it comes to that. Um, but in any event, thank you again to everybody for joining us. Uh, pleasure as always. Um, as we're moving into the fall now and, and into October, we'll be back. Should be back on the regular schedule in two weeks, kind of mid to late October again. Um, so until then, uh, we hope everybody stays well. 
and stays sanctions free. Stay sanctions free, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye.